Sunday morning to you. It's great to see you. If you are new with us, we say a special welcome to you. We're glad that you've chosen to be here. We would love to connect with you. We hope you find an opportunity to connect with us. I'm excited about what God is doing, not just here this Sunday morning, but what God is continuing to show himself to be doing in our midst. It is a great day to be alive and to follow Jesus. It really is. It really is. It's humbling. It's humbling to know that God would choose to use people like us surrendered to his will, his lordship every day to be a part of his kingdom work. I hope, uh, again, you feel, you feel in your heart, you know in your heart that God is up to something. If you're new with us this morning, uh, last week we started a new sermon series. Maybe you weren't able to be here uh, last Sunday. I would just encourage you, uh, we try to do it every single week that we're able. Uh, we've put our, our sermon audio and video online on our website. You can go there, hidewesleyan.com or hidewest.com. Both of those websites uh, will take you to our sermon audio and video and follow along. Uh, uh, we also have a, a small group that's taking place on Thursday nights in a relationship to uh, this sermon series specifically, and uh, we have had great conversation just this past week uh, together as God is uh, renewing some things inside of us and challenging us on uh, numerous levels. Last week, we talked specifically about messy grace. That's the title of the sermon series, and it's not that God's grace is messy. I tried to explain that last week. It's not that God's grace is messy, but rather His perfect grace when it comes in contact with us in our imperfections, often the result is a messiness of life. And God loves, the take home last week was that God loves messy people like me and you. And specifically, we talked about the idea of uh, love being the tension between grace and truth. You remember the rubber band that some of you were hoping would break and slap me in the face? Raise your hand if that was you. Okay, Jeremy, we'll talk later. <laughs> Love being the tension of, of grace and truth and how so often we as Christians, we take sides on either the grace side or the truth side. And we understood through reading through John chapter 8 together that Jesus himself lived out that tension perfectly between grace and truth, especially in his uh, interaction with the woman caught in adultery. This morning, we're going to continue on in this idea and reveal how messy truth exists as well. But first, the story. Uh, I was 15 years old when we were moving uh, from upstate New York, where I had grown up in Rochester, Henrietta, actually, uh, New York, where my dad had pastored for almost nine years of my growing up. Uh, and my dad felt called of the Lord to go and uh, be a part of a church in South Carolina. And I think before even my dad knew that he was called of God to do it, I knew that he was. I've told you this before, that uh, when we went down there to visit the church and visit the parsonage and kind of look at the area, just a block from where we would live in the parsonage that was connected to that church property uh, was one block away was a fireworks stand. That's how 15-year-old me knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God was calling our family to South Carolina. And I told my parents as much. Also, in South Carolina, the driving age was 15. I could get my learner's permit at age 15 and begin to learn how to drive. And I knew because of those two things that God was calling our family to South Carolina. And so I led them through and to the promised land of South Carolina. It's probably not exactly true that way, but I remember telling my parents that no doubt God was bringing us here so that I could blow stuff up. 
When I turned 16, my parents helped me buy my first car. How many of you uh, are proud of your first car, but you hope nobody really knows what it was? I'm about to tell you about my first car. It was a 1990 Ford Escort hatchback. It had like 200 and something thousand miles on it. We bought it at an auto auction, probably because my parents thought I would wrap it around something at that age, learning how to drive at age 15. It was a five-speed manual. It was an awesome little car. It was ugly. It was white. It, it was mostly paint chips, but it was my car. How many of you remember your car and you loved it no matter what it was? I remember when we went and picked it up at the auto auction, I came home from school and my dad said, guess what, we got the car, we can go pick it up, let's go get it. And we drove over, uh, literally across the street from our house was the auto auction. My dad made me drive it home uh, that day. I had to learn how to drive a manual the day we bought the car. It was awesome. We had to change that clutch pretty soon after that. But it was an awesome first car, and I remember uh, that car being a part of my life for those remaining years of high school, and as I was preparing to go off to school in Marion, Indiana from Spartanburg, South Carolina, uh, I knew that that car was going with me. It was a part of me. Everything I owned would go into that car, and I was super excited to have a car on campus, and I drove that Ford Escort 600 miles every way from South Carolina to Marion, Indiana, and I was super proud to have that car with me. The summer before I went off to my freshman year of college, I saved up enough money to buy what I liked to refer to as speeding ticket insurance. Do you know that they sell speeding ticket insurance? You can get it at Best Buy or on Amazon now. It's called a radar detector. Did anybody, anybody own one right now? No, don't, 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 don't get in trouble. I was super proud of my radar detector. I was an adult. I was going off to college. My parents didn't necessarily agree with my spending almost $200 in that day on a radar detector, but I was super proud of that thing, super excited to have it on the road. Literally, I remember feeling like I was driving a stealth bomber because I had a radar detector that would beep at me when and if danger was on the road. I mostly used it to make sure that when emergency personnel were coming, I would make sure to pull off to the shoulder. I can tell stories, right? That radar detector paid for itself over and over again, I'm sure, and I loved having it because in high school when I didn't have it, there were a number of tickets on my record that I'm not super proud of. But on the way, 600 miles from South Carolina to Marion, Indiana, I felt like I was invincible. And often I was. Sometimes I remember feeling sorry for the likes of those who had been pulled over by state troopers as I was driving on Interstate 40 through the mountains of Tennessee feeling pretty smug about myself. Feeling pretty good that I had bypassed the dangers that existed of policemen with radars. And I had lots of stories to tell of close calls, of when I didn't know if that chirp really meant that there was a policeman coming, but I decided to let off of the accelerator and go back under five miles an hour over to play it safe. You remember those days? Anybody else? One year I was... uh, at school in Marion, just finished classes, going home for either a break or for the end of the year, and I was excited about my trip. And back in those days, I was pretty competitive, but I've died to all of that competitive nature inside of me, mostly. 
I was pretty excited to get on the road that day and put all my stuff back in the car and head back home and uh, get on the road knowing that I was going to try to beat my personal record. Did anybody travel the same uh, route very often? And you always had it in you that you were going to beat your record. Anybody else? Anybody else use a radar detector to help you do that? No, no. Don't get in trouble. I got on the road, and I was literally not even five miles on the road, on a county road in Indiana. All the roads are straight. And I was on this road, and I was traveling probably above the speed limit. Radar detector on, not making any noise. And in the distance on these straight roads with nothing impairing my vision, I saw coming at me a state trooper with his lights on top, not on, coming my direction. But the radar detector said, no need to worry, Stevan. He doesn't care. And I can literally remember driving with my hand on the steering wheel with my seat dropped back because I was cool, driving an escort. <laughs> I'm not supposed to laugh there. <laughs> and I remember as that policeman came forward, he didn't care. There was no sound coming from my dashboard. There was no need to worry. He couldn't have cared any less about whether I was driving faster or slower than the speed limit. And so I lifted two fingers to wave at him as if to say, <laughs> if you only knew. And my smug attitude quickly transitioned to one of terror when as soon as he passed me, his lights turned on. And he did a U-turn in that two-lane highway and began to follow me. I pulled over, and I, I can remember the, the incredible awkward feeling of wondering how to answer when he said to me, do you know why I pulled you over? I didn't know how to respond. I knew what I might have been doing, but he didn't care. The radar detector told me that he didn't care what was going on in the speed of my vehicle. And he said to me, to teach me a lesson. Son, you need to start driving with that. And he touched my head and pushed on it like this. Start driving with that instead of that. And he pointed at the dash. And I went, oh, yeah, my, my mom must have left that in the car. I don't know what's going on. I, I, where did that come from? It, it came with the car. And I remember in that same moment ripping that stupid thing out of the dash and throwing it in the back seat like I would never see it again. I saw it again. But I remember in those moments learning the lesson that some of what I was getting away from, what I was getting away with in having that little speed ticket protection, it was about time that justice prevailed in my life. In telling you a story like that about myself, there, there's probably at least two main reactions that you would have as I tell that story. Either you have this idea of, oh, poor 19-year-old Stevan. Bless his heart. Oh, man, I bet that was off. I bet. You know what? I'll write you a check to make up for that. Okay, yeah. Somebody's having that feeling right now. We're not going there. I'm just kidding. Or you have this thought. You got what you deserve, boy. I won't tell you which one of my parents had which one of those attitudes when I got home after those 600 miles. A story like that, I have to ask the question, do you ever feel 
Like people do things and get away with them. I had story after story of the ways in which I'd gotten away from certain death or a big bill. You ever feel, you ever note the injustices in the world and you, wonder, you, you just wonder, when, when are things going to be made right? When is truth going to prevail? When is someone going to finally get caught? When is this going to be fixed? I think for all of us, that there's this internal bearing for the desire for justice. I, I think it exists on different levels in different people, but I think all of us have this internal desire to see wrongs made right. We, we, we have this desire, especially maybe within uh, political realms. We want, uh, when a politician is caught telling uh, a lie, we love to share that, don't we? When it's our, not our politician. You got me? When a, when a famous actor, someone who's in the, the, the media quite often, when they get caught doing something stupid, when they get caught acting in real life, we, we, we love those moments, don't we? we? We like it when things get found out. We're like, oh, finally, finally, hopefully, just, we, 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 we cry out when it doesn't work right. How about when, uh, I don't know, a famous uh, uh, sports team's owner gets caught doing something stupid? We love it. Isn't it interesting in our culture? Isn't it interesting in a culture that is continuing to, to turn its back on God? When, when things that have been theoretically done in secret, done in darkness, when they have been brought to light, there's this celebration that takes place. There's this, yes, righteousness prevailed. Yes, truth is known. Again, I think inside of us, there's this bearing towards justice that exists, that, that, that wants truth to be made known. Just a quick disclaimer, whoever you think I was talking about, I wasn't. Everyone who you think I might have been referring to is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law, or always guilty when you read about them on Facebook, Right? Whether you're a Christian or not this morning, understand with me that presenting the truth is of utmost importance to the God who created you. In fact, Jesus came to the earth and spent his time telling people about the truth, the truth of God's love, the truth of God's perfection, his holiness, the, 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 the truth of God's redeeming grace is what Jesus prepared every day to share with people. And today we have God's word as his truth. His word is our baseline. It's our starting point. It's our foundation. It's uh, where we go to to discern right from wrong. We have before us, we have in our possession, in whatever number of translations or paraphrases we can get it, God's word, his truth. We're going to look quickly at a guy in scripture who gets so wrapped up in God's truth that he neglects it himself. Jonah. The book of Jonah in the Old Testament. Jonah is a, an Old Testament prophet. We label him as a, a minor prophet compared to the major prophets who have more words written about them. Jonah is a short book. It's my favorite book of the Bible. My, story, my, my, my favorite uh, Bible story, Bible account, is the story of Jonah. Not because it's perfect, not because it's great, but because it tells a deep, deep story. Jonah, a prophet in the Old Testament, prophet means teacher, someone who spoke God's words to mankind. 
In the Old Testament, the prophets were uh, instructed by God to deliver his message. To, that They were an earpiece. God spoke to them and they repeated God's judgment, God's desires for his chosen people of Israel. What is unique about Jonah is that God is instructing Jonah to go to a place to talk to people who are not God's chosen people. Jonah chapter 1. We're going to read uh, this morning from God's word. Jonah chapter 1. I want to read uh, specifically first these first two verses. Listen to God's word. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Verse 2. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. God to Jonah. Go to Nineveh. And tell them that my wrath is about to be poured out upon them. Nineveh, in this day, is the capital city of Assyria. Uh, We don't know a lot about Nineveh, but what we do know is that Nineveh is guilty of uh, plotting evil against the Lord. They they experienced cruelty and plundering during uh, times of war. They were known for prostitution in their city and witchcraft. This is a bad place to be called to go. This is a bad place to be known by. And at first glance, maybe, I I don't know, I don't know about you, but when I look at the passage like this and I see uh, God commanding Jonah to go to Nineveh, maybe if I was commanded in that same way, I would say, oh, it's about time. I can't wait to tell those people that God's about to destroy them. Nineveh is this place that is known for being against God. This, this messenger of God, this prophet of God has this chance, literally a chance to tell those far from God about God's coming wrath. That God has said to Jonah specifically, I am going to destroy that place. They are far from me. Go tell them. And tell them to repent. I, I've never been called to go to Nineveh. But I have to imagine some kind of uh, similar instances in, in my heart and life and wonder how, how would I respond? How would we respond if God came to us? What, what, what if God came to you, friend, and said, Stevan, I'm finally going to pour out my wrath upon ISIS. I don't want you to tell him. It's time. They're going to pay for what they've done. Well, what if God said that to us? What if God said, you know what? There's enough corruption and backwardness, people turning from me in all levels of government, that it's it's time to set things straight. What if God said that to us? What if God said, go And be my mouthpiece. Tell them of the impending wrath that I am about to pour out. Give them their last warning. What if if God said, Stephen, I'm about to do something to those punk kids who drive 20 over the speed limit while texting. And they've never yet had a speeding ticket. (laughs) My response would be, all right, yes, finally. Finally, God's going to do something about ISIS. God's going to do something about the corruption in all levels of government. God's going to finally teach that punk kid with the radar detector a lesson. 
In, in reality, I, I think we have this mentality, we have this, this idea, and we read it all through the Psalms, this, I, this question of how long, Lord, are you going to allow the injustices of this world to take place? How long are you going to seemingly be silent, O oh Lord? How long are you going to hold back your wrath upon all of humanity that is far from you? How long are you going to allow human life? To be neglected and stolen before it's taken its first breath. How long, oh Lord? Isn't that theoretically the idea that this prophet of God has in his heart? We'd think Jonah would be excited to hear that a sworn enemy of Israel is finally under God's thumb. But look at what happens next. Verse 3. Jonah got up and he went in the opposite direction direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He, brought, he bought a ticket and went on board hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. If you've not studied the book of Jonah before, if you've not looked, you've not read these four chapters, very simple, do it. I encourage you, if you've not looked at this before, you've you got to be a little bit perplexed at the reality of this story, right? You gotta look at it and say, okay, was Jonah just scared of those Ninevites? Were they, was he afraid that if he got there, they would just be, begin to behead him? Or that is something maybe at first glance. But as you read the story of Jonah, the storyline is even maybe more confusing. Jonah reveals why it is he jumped on a ship at the port of Joppa. In chapter four, Jonah actually says to God this statement, as God does, Continue to extend his hand of mercy, Jonah says this. That's why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew, God, you are merciful and compassionate. You are slow to get angry and you're filled with unfailing love. You're eager to turn back from destroying people. He's not complimenting God here. Rather, Jonah is confused. Jonah is so concerned about the truth of God's grace. He's so mixed up. He's so knowledgeable of what God is willing to do that God is so full of grace that he will forgive humanity. Jonah, a prophet of God, a messenger of truth, is so blinded by that truth that he forgot that that truth is full of grace. Literally, Jonah had such a hatred for Nineveh that he didn't want to tell them. He didn't want them to have a chance to repent again. Jonah hated these people, these sworn enemies of God, these who everybody knew was far from God. He hated them in such a way that he refused to go and tell them of what God offers them. Now, before I throw Jonah into a category all his own, before I continue to point fingers at Jonah and say, what an idiot, can I ask a humbling question? Is Jonah's attitude any different than ours? If and when we've said with our words or in our heads or hearts something like this, just kill them all and let God sort it out. Jonah's attitude, is his heart any different 
than when skeptical Stephen enters the scene and wonders if someone who is declaring very publicly that they now have a relationship with Jesus after they've lived a life of sin and now they are forgiven. Is Jonah's attitude any different than those moments where I've sounded a lot like Jonah? Here's the truth. You know this. If you don't, hear it clearly. God doesn't just love any single group of people. God doesn't favor Wesleyans. God doesn't love pastors more than any board member or Sunday school teacher. God doesn't love those who are walking in relationship any more than those who aren't yet. Hear that one more time. Because I think when we first hear it, we don't really believe it. God doesn't love those who are walking in relationship with him any more than those who aren't. But let's be honest, we don't believe that. I I write those words down, I preach those words, and in my life, I, I, I confess before you, it feels oftentimes like I've been tricked by the enemy into believing that God loves me because of what I do for him. My, my literal job is to lead others into relationship with him. Surely God loves me more than someone far from him. Guess who tries to trick us into believing that? Someone just said it. It's the devil. The devil would like nothing more than for us who have heard the truth, accepted it into our life. We've been washed and cleansed by the grace offered to us. We're about to see it illustrated right here in front of us. The devil would love nothing more than for you and me to take that truth and keep it all nice and cozy and warm and safe inside of walls and call it a church and keep it there where it's safe and warm and no one can get it. Hello? The enemy would love for me to take the truth. And think it's only for me. The enemy would love for me to love the grace that has been extended to me. And hide it under a bushel. (laughs) The enemy would love for me to be comfortable. With talking to people who look. And smell. And taste. That's weird. Like me. John 3.16 doesn't say, for God so loved the Hyde Wesleyan Church that he gave his only son. God so loved evangelical Christians so much that he sent Jesus. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world, the broken, corrupted, sinful world. He loved us. Romans chapter 5 verse 8, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Why, Why do we think? Why do we think God loves us when we clean ourselves up? Back to Jonah real quick. Jonah, the great prophet, is on the run. He's headed to Tarshish on a boat filled with those far from God, these non-Israelites, these non-Jews. Verse 4, the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. 
Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help. They threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. But all this time, Jonah is asleep down in the hold. So the captain goes down, what are you doing? Get up, maybe you can do something about this. We've been trying everything. Get up and pray to your God, he says. Maybe he will pay attention to us and spare our lives. Do you think Jonah knows exactly what's going on in this moment? The crew casts lots to see which one of them had offended their God. And the casts, the lots cast down to, to Jonah. <laughs> they start asking him, what have you done? Who are you? Where are you from? What's your line of work? What country are you from? Jonah answers, verse 9, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, the one who made this stormy sea and the land. They're terrified at this. Terrified. Why would you do this? Why would you be on the run from him? What should we do to stop this? They ask. In verse 12, Jonah says, here's what you got to do. Throw me overboard. Give me away as a sacrifice. Let me go. Throw me overboard. It'll all stop right here, right now. It's the only answer. Just do it, guys. And I love what happens next. They don't want to. Verse 13, instead the sailors, these who are far from God are showing more grace. Do you see it? The sailors rode even harder to get the ship to the land, but the stormy sea was too violent for them, and they couldn't make it. So they cry out to the Lord God, Jonah's God, and they say, oh Lord, don't make us die for this man's sin. Don't hold us responsible for his certain death. Oh Lord, you have sent the storm upon him for your own good reasons. And they throw him over. And at once, verse 15, the storm stops. I've always loved the next verse. I've always loved this part of the story because what happens next With these who are far from God, verse 16, the sailors are awestruck by the Lord's great power, and they offer him a sacrifice and vow to serve him. Do you see God's grace at work in this moment? Anybody taking a cruise coming up? Can you imagine being Jonah in this moment? He's just been tossed overboard, and now he's bobbing around in, in, in a still seat. We don't know the exact timing of stuff, right? But now he's in the water expecting to die, no doubt. Expecting that the, the next little swell in the sea would be his last and he would finally go under and be done. That God would be appeased in this moment. <laughs> but God wasn't done. God isn't done with Jonah and God wants Jonah to get it. God wants this messenger of truth to receive the message of truth for himself. So verse 17, God had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was inside this fish for three days and three nights. <laughs> Listen, this is not just a story. This isn't just a bedtime story. It's not just a children's book. This is God's word. This is a true account. Jesus even refers to this specific interaction. For those of us who live skeptical lives, I believe with all my heart this truth of this account. Can you imagine being swallowed by a whale? Can you imagine how gross it must have been inside? Can you imagine how dark? If you've seen Pinocchio, you know. disgusting to think about and Jonah does exactly I think what we would have done in this situation all of all of chapter two in in Jonah is all Jonah's prayer 
And Jonah prays this prayer that we have prayed many times. You, you, you've seen this prayer, this idea of this prayer many times in media. You've prayed this prayer, chances are. And this prayer goes something like this. God, if you would just get me out of this, I will do whatever you ask of me. It's like the most famous prayer that we've been praying ever since. God, if you'll just save me from this surefire pit, I'll do whatever you say. The last verse of chapter 2 says this, Then the Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah out onto the beach. That's the sound. God answered Jonah's prayer. The fish coughed him up. Why? Because the Ninevites need to hear the truth. Because the truth needs to become truth. Not just to the Ninevites, but to Jonah as well. Jonah realizes an important lesson that these Ninevites need to know about the grace that Jonah has received, the grace that Jonah needs to. The Ninevites needed to hear the truth of who they were and what they're doing against God, and so does Jonah. Can you see it? Here's the key phrase to write down or scribble or memorize. Truth reminds us of the grace we need. Truth reminds us of the grace we need. This is what we have to understand. This is what Jonah needed to understand. The grace is for everyone, and that truth holds us accountable to that gift of grace. Truth reminds us of the grace we need. Jonah wrongly thought that it was grace available only for a specific group of people or those who converted but God says no my grace is already available for everyone and that includes anyone truth reminds us it convicts us it points us every day to the grace truth God's truth God's perfect truth points to the reality that we are not good on our own grace is for everyone and that includes anyone. Hyde Wesleyan Church, I'm, I'm praying that we can grasp that truth without the need for a Sharknado experience. Without the need for a swallowed up by a fish moment. That we would understand that grace is made available to the likes of us. That, that as we understand grace, when we're tempted to question whether someone else should be extended to grace by God, in that very moment, as quick as that idea may come to our mind, we should remember that grace is available for everyone, especially the likes of me, if I could come up with that idea. Grace is available to someone who would forget because of bias and opinion that any other human being is intrinsically valued and created in the image of Almighty God. It's with that reminder that we can start, that we must start in building relationships with those who are far from God. You and I need grace when we realize that we need God's grace just as much as any other person does. It then gives us the capacity and the margin to be able to love people like Jesus did. God loves people no matter who they are, no matter what they've done. And that means God loves you. Wherever you are, whatever's going on, 
however many radar detectors are in your dash, whatever, wherever, whoever, God's grace is currently being extended. That's the starting point. Truth leads us to realize the grace we need. Will you stand with me? Bow your heads with me, would you? I don't know who it is in your life that perhaps God has already revealed in these moments and ask of you. to share his grace with, to be the truth in someone's life. I don't know. I don't know who it is. But maybe there's someone in your life right now that you know, you've, you've categorized them, you've said they're too far from God, they'll never, they'll never hear, they'll never listen, they'll never do, they'll never, they'll never, they'll never, they'll never. Please remember in this moment, God's grace is still available for them. Whoever that name is, maybe it's yours. Remember that God's grace is available. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for allowing us the privilege of being men and women, boys and girls who have experienced God's grace. Thank you for the truth that reminds us of the grace that has been extended to the likes of us. God, would you please help us to see the tremendous responsibility and opportunity we have to lead others into a relationship, others to the truth of what you offer. Would you please, God, challenge our hearts and our lives every single day to lead others into a relationship with you. Help us to knock down the pedestals that we've built for ourselves and help us to love like you. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your truth that has transformed our lives. Would we see it as an, a truth that is available for any and all. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.